0: Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week, we are extremely honoured to be joined by Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kossoy. Mish is the Director of the Year Programme at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, which is an open, co-ed and non-denominational Jewish learning community where students encounter and grapple with classic texts and traditions of Judaism, whilst exploring their relevance to today's most pressing issues. Mish originally comes from the United States, from Washington, where she studied Near Eastern and Judaic studies at Brandeis University, and she also has a PhD from New York University, where her dissertation explored the courageous manner in which the rabbis of the Talmud created a new criminal punishment system. She has also completed her studies under the tutelage of Rabbi Herzl Hefter and Rabbi Daniel Sperber, and that was at Beit Midrash El in Jerusalem. Rabbi Misha, huge welcome to you, and we look forward to exploring Parashat Mishpatim with you today.
1: Thank you, Simon. I'm really pleased to be invited. I have loved listening to your podcasts, and I've actually really noticed that you choose your teachers very carefully around their expertise. And I found myself wondering, why on earth did you choose me? Did you pick me because I wrote my dissertation about criminal punishment, which makes a lot out of the laws that are in this week's. Parsha, which starts these are the laws which you shall set before them and the Talmud understands that you will put before him the tools of the trade that is of course the whip and the shofar to make sure that you can enforce the laws and make sure they're done the way they're supposed to or did you pick me because I for many years was the director of the social justice track at Mohon Pardes which is a class which is designed to bridge the most important Important issues that are facing the modern world and the state of Israel together with Torah sources and sort of get a little bit outside of the Beit Midrash with Torah sources. I don't know, but I decided to go with the social track recently
0: So I definitely picked for both reasons and look forward to uncovering more. <laughs>
1: Okay, so good. I'm going for the social. I'm focusing this time on the social justice track, and I'm going to argue that the medium is the message in this week's Parsha. The message is the centrality of law in building a just society, and only a just society, which is rooted in law, is worthy of relationship to Hashem. For people who have been following Parsha, I think this week, Parshat Mishpatim is a big shock. It's been through Bereshit and Shmote Genesis and Exodus has been this beautiful action-packed stories every week, some new adventure. And all of a sudden the stories come to a very sharp halt with a set of laws. Law is by itself a little bit hard, but this particular kind of law, I think, is very challenging. It's not a law code, but rather a collection. It's not principles, but cases, a sort of casuistic set of laws. One that's hard thing too is that it's, details. Last week, we're in the grand encounter of, I am the Lord, your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And this week, where if your slave doesn't want to go free, pierce his ear. It seems a bit of a letdown from the tremendously elevated to the technical. It's also a miscellany. It seems only sporadically organized. It's a group of laws about slaves, and then it's about capital punishment, and then it's civil law, and then it's back again to capital punishment. And then there's a little bit of religious law, but it's mostly torts and guardians and stealing. And it's hard to understand exactly how it's all brought together. And what I want to suggest is that the medium is a message that is a feature. It's not a bug. Law code is at the basics of establishing a society. I really appreciated Ben Summer last week that even as he talked about the way the revelatory experience had law as an essential connection to that experience with God and really put law in the center there. The Ten Commandments, though, are not enough to build a society. In Genesis, there's something called the seven Noahite laws, seven basic principles that everyone, not just Jews, but that every person is obligated to do. Don't steal, don't kill, sexual morality, don't blaspheme, don't worship idols, don't eat the limb of live animals. Those are six things you can't do. And there's only one thing that you have to do, which is to set up a law system. And I don't think that that's coincidental. The positive command of setting up a law system is a way of demanding justice. It's not enough to have six big principles. God is in the details. That casuistic style, rather than grand principles, we move from the practical, small actions, the way you treat your slave, the way you treat your wife, the way you treat a stranger in day-to-day interactions is actually what defines us as human beings and as Jews. And I think that the intermingled organization of the laws is also very deliberate. That dichotomy, which we tend to make between mitzvot ben adam lechaveron, and mitzvot ben makom between interpersonal law and our relationship with God is completely alien to Judaism. And that was one of the innovations of Judaism in Near Eastern culture, that you can't separate religious law and secular law. My favorite formulation of this is from Isaiah 58 it's the haftarav Yom Kippur but I think it's very relevant to this parsha as well. The context is why are we fasting God and you're not paying any attention? We're really beating ourselves up and you're paying no attention. And God says hello ze This is the fast I desire, says God, to unlock the fetters of wickedness, to untie the cords of oppression, to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke. It is to share the bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home. When you see the naked, you shall clothe them and do not ignore your own kin. Fasts, which are this classic religious display of devotion to the all-powerful, really become meaningful. They come with an outreach to the powerless humans that are in your community. That's essential. It's impossible to separate religious from civil, and that's what our Parsha is all about. It's precisely the details that determine who we are as individuals and as a society. There's really nothing more indicative of your religious devotion than the way you treat your slaves, the class of individuals who are the most vulnerable and hold the absolute least amount of power. And that's why our Parsha starts off with that.
0: I just wondered so much that you've already introduced there. You spoke about the Hebrew Bible's innovation as to the laws being very much as part of the everyday. And I just wondered, actually, drawing on your ancient Near East study, how you see this differs from other legal systems.
1: This would be quite a project. Let me you know what? Let me hold can I hold on to that question? That second example that I'm gonna show will be a good one for us to talk about that. So I'll
0: come Of back course, to of course.
1: Thank you for asking.
0: No problem. Uh,
1: one of the ways that the Torah centers this integration of law into religious life is the context in which our collection is placed. Often this collection of laws is called the Sefer Habrit. These laws are nested as part of the story similar to the way that Ben Summers spoke last week as a way of emphasizing that the core of how we connect to Hashem is essential to the narrative. Last week we had the Ten Commandments and this week we have these laws and then we come back, if you will, in chapter 24, Moses bringing these laws to all the people and making a covenant with them, th- actually throwing blood on them and engaging them in a mutual obligation, which is really essential to the law giving, that they have to consent, that it has to be done publicly and collectively. It's in this week that we have the famous expression, Nase we will do and we will say. And the reason why this is essential for it is, of course, it's only the community that can hold us responsible for making a just society. There's lots of things that actually can't be done by the courts. Lost objects, you can't really get the court to enforce kindness to the widow. Part of it is having a law code and part of it is the community taking that on upon themselves. And secondly, it's because the law is that core part of our tradition. And the abarbanel also Pays attention to the nesting of this story and its context by pointing out it doesn't say "Ela Hamishpatim," these are the laws. It rather says "V." The end, as if to say, end, these are the laws. That vav, says a barbanel, is connecting to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which are about this unique relationship that we have with kaddish Baruch Hu, with God, also 613 of them are alluded to in that Ten Commandments. And these were also part of that revelatory experience. If I can put on my Talmudist hat for half a minute. That's really the rabbinic enterprises to take all of those details, to take the Ten Commandments and build out detail after detail of them. So if the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself, the rabbis will translate that concretely into be careful what kind of death penalty you give to someone or don't marry somebody without meeting them first. It's not just sweet fuzzy morals, but it has to be something that's translated into very concrete actions. So I'm arguing that God is in the details, that justice is in the details, and that the religious experience is totally dependent on the interpersonal experience, and that law is the only way that defines us and reflects much greater value. So that's what I think summarizes the Parsha in the big picture. And if you'll allow me to, I'll pause here, and then I'll give you two examples, one of which will answer um, your question um, in just a second. So let me give you two examples of how I see this working in practice. Here's one. When men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, that's not a tragedy. The one responsible shall be fined as the husband exacts from him the payment to be based on reckoning. The ma son yeh, but if there is a tragedy. Natata nefesh tachat nefesh. The penalty should be life for a life. Ayin tachat, ayin shayin tachat shayin, yad tachat yad, regel tachat ragal Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. V'i'ah tachat kv'i'ah, petza tachat patsa, chabura tachat chabura. A burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. I picked this law both because it's exceedingly dry and also juicy. You know it starts off with the case of the fetus, the miscarriage. And I think it's very interesting that Jewish tradition learns from this, and Christian tradition learns it differently if you want to compare to traditions that this shows the Yatsu her the she miscarries, but there's not a tragedy. The translation that Jews understand to mean that you're not considered a life until you're born. The Christians understand it that it's at a certain point in the pregnancy, uh, according to traditional Exegesis. But then it goes on and uses this familiar expression of lex talionis mida, da, keneged mi an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Mishnah bribes from these verses five forms of personal damage. Tsar, ripui, shevet, and boshet. That you have to pay the damage, the pain, the healing, the lost labor, and the humiliation for shame. And all of those various categories of damages are learned from this Parsha, and they're learned to be monetary compensation, which means that these verses are understood to be purely a civil case. It's just a matter of paying money. If you break it, you buy it. And the biblical scholar Nahum Sarna does a beautiful job. He argues that that's actually the original intent of the verses, that it really is referring to monetary compensation. So naturally, we'll ask ourselves, why is the Torah using this language? If it means that you should pay money, why does it say an eye for an eye? And I'd like to suggest that it's a kind of religious message, that it's not just a civil law. You know, there's this experiment, you probably don't have this in England, but they did an experiment here in Jerusalem that people who pick up their children late from daycare, that they would fine them if you come late to get your kids. And they found that actually people came more often late when they were picking up their children when they had to pay because they figured, hey, I don't owe you anything. I paid you, so I've given you just desserts. We know that when people pay fines, they think they've paid their debt and the matter can actually get worse. So here, the religious message is very clear. A human being is created, but Selim Elohim in the divine image, you're paying for the harm that you've done. You violated somebody's liberty, and that's a moral wrong. But there's also a violation of the sanctity of a human being when you hurt them. And the Rambam expresses this in the language of ever. We don't take out your eye, but we use that language in the Torah because you should know that that's what you deserve. You can't think that you pay for the arm or the leg or the damage and even for the healing and all of the humiliation that goes with it, and you've actually made up for the terrible thing that you've done. There's a tremendous injury to the sanctity of a human being, which is a religious offense that can't be compensated by a civil payment. So on the one hand, it's presented as a civil law, but even just slightly scratching the surface of the Torah, you demonstrate that there's a moral component that has deep religious implications about our relationship. Because the human being is created with Selim Elohim, paying cannot fully compensate for the harm. The details are essential in figuring out how to compensate, right? Meaning all of the details that are in the Torah, that you have to pay for the pain and you have to pay for each of the five components, which they learn from these words. Those are details and those details can fill multiple tractates of the Talmud. But the words of the Torah point us to the integration of the religious law with the civil lives. So, That's one example of the way the civil and the religious are completely integrated and that you can't separate our horizontal relationships between one another from our relationship with the divine. You asked me to share a little bit about the relationship to Near Eastern culture, and this particular law is really a good example because, as you may know, the Hammurabi Code has a similar. Argument even earlier. If one person kills somebody else's son, then the person whose son is killed gets to kill their son. We don't have that in the biblical tradition. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth between the two people. My son will never be held responsible for punish for something that I've done wrong. So there's one example of how things parallel to the ancient Eastern tradition. Another example I'd like to give is the law of the sabbatical year, which is. Told over in chapter 23 verse 12. six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from your labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest, and that your bondman and the stranger be refreshed. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its field, but in the seventh, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat it and what they let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. I picked this because it's the sabbatical year this year, and we've been doing a deep dive at Pardes, and it's really been inspiring me. We'll be doing another deep dive in July, the first week of July, if there's anyone who wants to come to Israel to study with us from July 3rd to 7th. To me, when you read this law, it sounds like it could be understood as an agricultural command, and some commentators do understand it. When I read it, I notice the context right before it. Right before it is laws about the poor. You shall not oppress the stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in Egypt. When we connect to the laws above, it sort of feels like these law is about interpersonal law. The sabbatical year is an opportunity for the poor. Great leveling of hierarchies, just like we get to eat and the animals get to eat. The Shabbat, the Sabbath does a similar thing that everyone has the opportunity to rest. This reset creates an opportunity for the income gap between the wealthy and the poor not to grow too big. And later versions add even more levels to this. It would be correct, actually, to read as a beautiful economic law, the way to temper the brutality of the capitalist system. When you read it in the context of what comes after it, which are the laws of various holidays and about our connection with God, you see that it also has a religious component, a ritual content, the language of tishmatenah, the Natashta. In the seventh year, you shall release it and surrender. David Hartman writes beautifully about the rules of Shabbos. The setting of the sun on Friday ushers in a unit of time when the flowers of the field and I are equal members of the universe. Halacha prohibits my plucking a flower from my garden or doing with it as I please. At sunset, the flowers become a thou with a right to existence, irrespective of its instrumental value for me. I stand silently before nature as before a fellow creature and not as a potential object of my control. By forcing us to experience the meaning of being creatures of God, the Sabbath aims at healing the human grandiosity of technological arrogance. So, Justice Shabbat is an opportunity for us to put ourselves into perspective and to see ourselves as a thou, no different than the flowers, and to release the hierarchies between us and God. So too, the seventh year is that to the other six years of an agricultural cycle. There's something that is so powerful from a religious perspective of letting go for an entire year. It's hard to let go for one day a week. But to let go for an entire year, a whole season of not planting and not harvesting, of letting go of your food, that demands a whole level of surrender. It's hard to imagine anything more desperately needed today than that kind of a release of control of seeing ourselves, our place in the universe in a much more modest way. And so If you look at the law of the sabbatical year in relationship to what comes before it, it's about an economic reset of a rethinking of hierarchies. And if you look at what comes after it, you see that it also has a deep message about the way we relate to the divine and to the world, a spiritual message. Again, you see that the medium is a message. The law is the way to perfect our relationship Both our horizontal relationships with the people around us, and only by perfecting those horizontal relationships can we possibly improve our relationship with the divine, our vertical relationships. So, if I wanted to just summarize what I've tried to argue, that the medium is the message. The law is not a code, but it's a collection. It's not principles, but cases. And all of that's on purpose because God is in the details. There's a deliberate intermingling of categories of civil laws with religious laws because. That's what morality really is. Relationships aren't just horizontal or just vertical. All of that is part of an integrated human being and an integrated relationship with the divine. And that is why context these laws are placed in the context of the story of revelation. And Rev Hirsch even suggests looking at a slightly different context, sees that the very last law that was given in Parsha Yitro was a commandment to build the Mizbeach, the altar to God. And the very next thing that will be done in next week's Parsha is how to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Says Hirsch, the V that connects Elah Mishpatim is designed to remind us that the only way to build, the, to build a sanctuary to God is to integrate these law codes into our life. And for me, that's a prayer, an ideal, something that I hope that we would be able to turn into a reality.
0: Rabbi Mish, thank you so much A great connection that you've given us for next week too As we get further into the all-important detail That you have shared the importance of today Maybe just one question, if I may We have, as you referenced, that all-important phrase Na'asev Anishma That is included in this week's parashah we shall do, and then we shall understand. At the same time, actually, part of our exciting project at Jewish Quest is that there seems to be, perhaps in recent years, there has been more of that focus on praxis, perhaps to the detriment of understanding. And I just wonder the balance that you see that should be struck on that
1: Wow, what a powerful question, Simon. Thank you. I think that there is an interesting tension in a modern world in which we live where there's so much rejection of tradition because it doesn't make sense to us and personal autonomy feels so important. I'm not surprised, and I can even appreciate, that the traditional Jewish world would come back to an unquestioning submission and obedience to God. Is a sort of corrective to what's going on in the Western world. I actually think that that's a very much intention with the rabbinic approach to Torah and Torah interpretation, which is to see themselves in partnership with God and in interpreting the Torah. So, I think the powerful combination of naseh v'nishma. Yes, absolutely. Obedience to authority and an acceptance of the Torah and understanding God's commandments, sometimes we don't like them and we do them anyway, is a religious value, a corrective to Western culture that I really appreciate, but it needs to be balanced all the time with nishma, with the commandment to understand and to bring our deep sense of understanding and thus our own interpretations to the Torah, which has been a critical part of what's kept Jewish tradition dynamic and alive and relevant for thousands of years. So I think that's a danger that we should be very careful about.
0: Thank you so much for that, and thank you for your wonderful argument and exploring the Parsha with us today. We do look forward to welcoming you back.
1: Thank you so much, Simon. May you have a wonderful week and a Shabbat Shalom.
0: Thank you. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find out all about the exciting content that we have for you on our mothership on jewishquest.org. If you enjoyed this podcast with Rabbi Mish, then to learn more about Pardes and their fantastic array of short term, summer, semester and year programmes, do visit www.pardes.org.il. We do look forward to seeing you again next week.